Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This installment has two segments. In the first, Anne from PP Podcast and I share our thoughts on the music of the 10th Pokemon movie, The Rise of Darkrai. In an unusual twist, this film features English songs in both the U.S. and Japanese versions. Listen to our discussion to find out whether Sarah Brightman's I Will Be With You or Kirsten Price's I'll Always Remember You comes out on top. The second segment is a player interview from a recent Pokemon TCG League challenge and pre-release. We talk about what deck the player used and some of the cards from the recently released Ultra Prism set. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PP Podcast. And in our series of discussions of music from the Pokemon movies, comparing the English and Japanese endings, we made it up to movie 10, The Rise of Darkrai. So, in this episode, we have a couple songs to discuss, of course. We also have a little bit of feedback to go over. But uh, the matchup this time is I Will Be With You, Where the Lost Ones Go, performed by Sarah Brightman. And in the movie version, Chris Thompson, but there are several other versions of this song, which we'll talk about. On the English side... We have I'll Always Remember You by Kirsten Price. Uh, there are some other music. We'll talk about that, but that's going to be our primary matchup. So we're going to start by explaining what we know about the songs. And we start on the Japanese side. That's kind of in quotes this time. But Anne, <laughs> what can you tell me about Sarah Brightman, first of all? Um, well, for starters, she was very easy to research. I didn't even have to break out my Denshi G show. Um, but that is because she is not Japanese. She is a English singer, uh, and a woman of many talents. In addition to being a classical trained soprano, she's also an actress, a songwriter, a dancer, musician. She's done a lot of things. And she began, uh, her, her entertainment education since she was very young, um, taking dance and piano and performing. Um, in many, uh, local festivals and competitions and just moving up until at age 13, uh, she made her debut, uh, in the theatrical musical I and Albert at the Piccadilly Theater in London. Um, and just kept on having success after that. She began her television, uh, television and music career with a group called Hot Gossip. And, and they were kind of a dancing, singing troupe that got to perform on a lot of t- television programs that were known for being very risque. They had some interesting outfits and even more interestingly titled songs. Some of them were so very obviously risque, but there's also some just weird ones. Like there's a disco track called I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper. So probably a very interesting time of her life. <laughs> um, but she eventually uh, auditioned for a new musical called Cats that people may have heard of, um, which is where she met Andrew Lloyd Webber and married Andrew Lloyd Webber and eventually divorced Andrew Lloyd Webber. But more importantly, she went on to create uh, the character of Christine in Phantom of the Opera, another little show people may have heard of. And in fact, her recording, the cast, the original London cast recording is the uh, highest selling uh, cast album to date. Her acting was not as well received um, in the US when the show moved to Broadway. Critics loved her singing, were not as fond of her acting, despite the fact that the show was kind of a smash success, as as people know. So I guess your mileage may vary on whether that was deserved or whether it was sour grapes. There was a lot of uh, political maneuvering to get her to be able to perform in America. The the American Theatrical Actors Guild was not a big fan of that. But she did win some awards for her performance at places other than the Tonys. So again, I guess it comes down to viewer preference. Sometime after leaving the stage, she began working on her music career a a bit more heavily, and she's credited with sort of creating the classical crossover genre, where she she sings in a very high classical opera style, but also melds pop and all sorts of other genres together. And 
she herself doesn't like to put labels on music, but has finally accepted that that genre, the classical crossover, whatever that means. It, it basically just seems to be a catch-all, but she's She's worked with a variety of different artists from the the vocalist of Kiss, as we'll talk about, to Josh Groban, classical artists such as uh, Jose Carreras. Um, and she's sung, um, as many classically trained singers do in about every language under the sun, uh, including but not limited to English, Spanish, Latin, French, Italian, Catalan, German, Turkish, Russian, Mandarin, Chinese, and Japanese. And at one time, she was uh, one of the highest selling foreign artists in Japan. She's she's gained recognition all over the world, but the Japanese uh, fame is particularly notable because it probably led to her getting uh, commissioned to work on uh, this song for the Pokemon movie. And it was difficult for me to find... Um, properly verified and cited facts about this, but it does seem that most people state that she did not, well, obviously she did not develop um, Where the Lost Ones Go, um, as I'll talk about later, because it is a cover for the Pokemon movie, but it does sound like she was contacted specifically to work on, to, to provide a song for this movie, and that this song was specifically requested to be licensed. So... While the song may not have been developed specifically for the movie, it does sound that the producers had a, a strong idea in getting her her voice and her and this song in particular on the track. A couple fun, interesting facts about Sarah Brightman. Uh, she almost went into space and became the first opera singer to perform from space. She pulled out at the last minute due to family problems, but I, I just thought that was interesting. Um, she's performed at two Olympic Games, Barcelona and Beijing. Uh, she's very well known for her phil philanthropy work and her charity work, um, and especially her work with UNESCO, and she's kind of an artist ambassador for that. And her vocal range, uh, the height limit, she can hit an F6, which if you're not in the know, that's a, that's a big deal. And her highest note hit in public is an E6, which again, is just a very big deal. And this is not the first uh, Japanese film that she has been a part of. She's also recorded songs for a couple other live action and anime movies and a few indie video games. Absolutely, absolutely massive amount of information work there. Extremely impressive resume. Because <laughs> I could actually read <laughs> the websites <laughs> this time. Yeah, that certainly helps. Probably like the biggest get in Pokemon music since like Donna Summer and The Power of One. So Yeah, yeah. She is definitely recognized internationally and rather a large star and one of the one of the highest selling musical artists period but like it definitely in the world of classical music she is the highest selling high selling female soprano ever okay well that's a lot about her what can you tell me about the song it's it's not uh an original song it actually goes back a fair ways what can you tell us about i will be with you where the lost ones go yeah um it is a cover of where the Lost Ones Go, no parentheses, which was a single uh, from a Norwegian singer called Cecil. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, I did my best to look up a pronunciation guide, but found conflicting, <laughs> conflicting guides. Um, but it's from her All Good Things album. Um, it's a duet with Espen Lind. The lyrics and, and the melody are about the same. The Sarah Brightman version is a little different, a little more operatic. Um, and she performs it with Chris Thompson uh, for the movie and the single release. And she did record it with a different male vocalist, Paul Stanley of Kiss fame, uh, for the album. Um, she's also recorded a Polish edition and a Russian uh, edition with different male vocalists as well. Let's see. Uh, the single released in 2007, July 16th. And like I said, all accounts seem to be that this song was requested specifically as, as well as Sarah Brighton. And at that time, she was very popular in Japan. So kind of suggests that there was a deliberate musical choice being made for this movie. 
Um, and being that it is a movie about music, that would make sense. But being that it is a cover song that very unlikely that it was developed specifically for the movie. Yeah, it seems more like one of those right place, right time things. Yeah, exactly. I, it kind of reminds me of the journey that the um, We're a Miracle by Christina Aguilera may have taken. It just happened to come across the desks of the right people at the time that they were looking for a song to fit a certain vibe. And, you know, all the right people managed to meet each other to make this happen. Yeah, those stories are always pretty interesting. Well, let's transition back over to the English side. So I don't have quite as much information on Kirsten Price. I, I can't quite match that, I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> um, but she was born in the United Kingdom, uh, I think near London. Uh, we actually do have an interview with her that I did back way in 2008. Uh, kind of an interesting story there. It was going to be in person, but we changed it to over the phone, which ended up being good because there was a huge hailstorm that hit when she uh, arrived in Milwaukee. But it's a great little interview, and it gives more detail than I'll be able to put in here. But in any case, uh, she came to America in 2001, um, sometime around 9-11. I don't know if it was right before or right after or what. And she, you know, sort of got into music, uh, did a few things here or there. As far as her non-Pokemon work, you might be familiar with a song called Magic Tree, which was used in a couple places. It was used on Showtime's The L Word, and uh, I think it was used in an episode of CSI, or, or one of the CSI shows back in the day. So uh, definitely some uh, publicity there. Um, around the time when this movie came out, she was sort of promoting her album called Guts and Garbage, which we talk about in the interview. A couple explicit tracks on there, but most of the rest of it is probably uh, okay-ish. But in any case, uh, she's also had some work, I guess, uh, production-wise with Kids Bop. And since then, she's written uh, another album. Uh, I don't remember the exact name of it. But uh, since then, she's done like one or two other things, and she's kind of fallen off the face of the earth as far as like music goes uh, four or five years ago. Uh, doesn't have an active website, her Facebook seems to be inactive, her YouTube channel seems to be inactive. So not really sure what she's up to right now. Hasn't done anything Pokemon since, except for, of course, the theme for the second Diamond and Pearl season, which we'll talk about a little bit later. However, uh, one interesting thing we picked up from the interview there is that uh, this was back when Pokemon USA at the time, they weren't TPCI yet, still had an office in New York. Uh, they would eventually merge their operations into their Seattle area uh, operations. Uh, but this time, I believe they still had some folks working out in New York City. And they came in for the recording of the, the two songs that she did. And uh, she said it was a lot of fun, so always a little bit of an interesting fact. As far as the actual writing of I'll Always Remember You, this is the uh, new writing team that we have. John Leffler and David Wolfert, whose names you will be hearing a lot over the next uh, five or six episodes, I would say. And uh, they collaborate on this as they did for much of the stuff in the fourth and fifth generation. So those are more or less the production details, not nearly as... Uh, verbose as what Anne was able to provide, but I, I hope that uh, filled in some things there. Any thoughts, Anne? Well, I did not get a I did not get a Sarah Brightman interview, so maybe it all comes out in the wash. <laughs> Perhaps. It was a lot of fun doing that one, so. Now, this is a lovely song, and so I, I'm guessing with John Leffler and David Wolford on it, yeah, it probably was developed specifically for this movie, or Pokemon in general, and... I have to assume. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk about each of the songs sort of content-wise. First of all, uh, I Will Be With You. So you mentioned that this is a cover. The original version has some definite similarities, but the instrumentation is different because it was an older version. How would you describe sort of the instrumentation in genre of the Sarah Brightman version? Um, It's not as different as you might think. There's, I would say it starts off maybe a little more sparse, whereas... Cecil's production of it, I saw a couple live performances, is very much like a like a three-piece band, whereas this is, it starts out a little more sparse and then grows and swells to become more of an orchestral, like you would expect to support a, a classical opera singer type thing. But there is still kind of that guitar sound and kind of that 
laid back folk folk rock ballad sort of feel to it. Hmm. So it, it like I said, the different there's it's not as different as you might think, but it, it's it's definitely a ballad. There's a definite stage presence to this. I did want to kind of talk about that. This is a duet, and we haven't seen too many of those up to this point in Pokemon really at all. I mean, there was that weird promotional song for Ruby and Sapphire between uh, Rachel Lillis and Veronica Taylor as Misty and Ash, respectively, uh, that you might have... And High Touch, too. <laughs> that'll come a bit later, High Touch will. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's not happened yet. How do you feel about the way the male and female vocals kind of uh, intersected and meld in this one? I I really love it. Like, like it's a duet, and it really also feels like a conversation. And from a song standpoint, it's very beautiful. And as it relates to the plot of the movie, I find I really appreciate it. I, I do think lyrically... It's being that it wasn't written specifically for this movie, obviously, it's a little more on the vague side, but the emotions they're conveying are very much in line with the theme of the movie. So, yeah, I, I find it works really well together. And there are there are moments when they're singing in unison and moments when they're singing like counterpoint, moments where each of them are, are soloing, and I find that the overall story that the song is telling fits very well with the feelings I have when this movie ends. So, spoiler alert, <laughs> I prefer the other song in this one, and I don't know if I'm on the wrong wavelength here or something, but I had, especially with the Sarah Brightman version, I don't feel like the two vocal parts really come together as well as I would like. I think I like the male part more in the versions I listen to. I think the the Cecil version, I think the voices meld a little bit better, but somehow they just seem kind of off to me, and I kind of wanted to... Oh, I, I see what you mean now. Yeah, where, yeah, the original Norwegian, they both kind of have that raspy rock voice, whereas here we have kind of a more sort of a male rock pop sort of vibe. He He's not an opera singer, whereas she's got that very classically trained voice that, you know, resonates and it vibrates and it goes extremely high. You're right, and they are a bit disparate. For me, I like that disparity specifically. Like, if she had sung it with Placido Domingo or something, I don't think I would love this song as much, but I do see where you're coming from. Whereas that that disparity might not work for everybody. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't think either any of these versions are terrible or anything. I, I mean, I don't find it grating or anything like that. But I, I do kind of feel like when I listen to either of the male parts uh, against Sarah Brightman, if I had to keep one, I'd keep the male part. And I'd, I'd hate to say this. I mean, she's a quite an accomplished singer, but I kind of think another female voice might have worked better, at least to my ears. And, you know... So, I I definitely think that's a valid opinion to have. I for for my part, I would keep it because to have her voice, which can kind of soar in the stratosphere, against a, a voice that kind of sounds more like what we would hear on the radio, like it gives a very sort of ethereal vibe of like two separate worlds, which to me brings up those feelings of Darkrai living separately from the human world and relationships between humans and Pokemon. Like, it evokes a lot of those thoughts in me, which, um, spoiler alert for the movie, when we end, there's a lot of angst about the fact that they are separated from Darkrai, and in fact, a lot of the city thinks he, he it's dead. It's not, but like there is definitely that part where it can't or won't live amongst the humans. And that's kind of a thread throughout the movie is it making a connection with a human girl, you know, and not being able to relate to people and misunderstandings. And like many legendary Pokemon feeling, it has to live separately from them. So to me, having that dissonance, I guess, in their voices, which blends but not in maybe the way you 
might think in the way you're talking about works very well for me. Especially, again, with just her voice that just will pierce at the highest notes possible and ring like like something that is not of this world. But I do think you have, like, it's not, you're not wrong to definitely not find that to be aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, it, it sort of feels, like I said, there's there is a certain separation is the best way I can describe it. And maybe that makes it work thematically with the movie, but not really as musically well as I would like. I, I'm having... Like I said, this I, I knew when we got to this movie, this would be a, a little bit of an odd uh, discussion. <laughs> and this is one of the, the movies that I, I thought about when I started the series that I really wanted to get to. So, But I just – even the Cecil version, they still don't quite interlock in the way I would expect. It's, it's like they're in two very different places, but to a point <sighs> – let me think about this for just a second – well, I don't know if this is where where you're going with that, but they don't blend like their their vocal the the sound waves do not blend super well. But they never they obviously never sat down and played notes and tried to blend together. But because their voices are both of the same style, it works. Whereas I do think there is a case to be made that. Sarah Brightman is singing in a very different style than her male counterpart. And so even if their harmonies work well together, you there is a, a separation that is very noticeable and jarring. Yeah, because I'm thinking of like scenes from like a musical where there'll be two characters who are singing kind of in parallel, but apart. Mm. This seems like it's doing that, but still not quite in the way I would expect or would want from a musical perspective, which, right. like I said, it's not terrible, but it feels like it's a bit off the mark, like it falls a bit short to me, and, and that's a bit of an issue I have with every version I've really listened to. There's even a, a live version with Chris Thompson, and I listened to that, and it still didn't quite ring true for me. It's just, I, I wish I could explain it better, but like I said, not a terrible song. I'd say it's it's well-written. It's got some great things about it. Um, you had mentioned a little bit about the lyrics. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that as well. How do you feel certain parts of the song lyrically relate to the movie, beyond what you've already said? Right. Certain parts do not work as well, I think. There is talk about losing the love I found, like, and kind of a a relationship that has to end. And love does not often play a huge role in Pokemon movies, although this this movie does have a a very cute couple that I that I totally ship. But but they make it together at the end of the movie, not leave. So little things like that. Are where it was obviously not written specifically for the movie do could take a person out, but there are also so many things about like you know leave and let me go, don't look back. Um, I'm going where the lost ones go, and like crying without a sound. Where have you gone? Like just that living in the shadow, which is kind of a theme of this movie, is dark rye existing in the shadow and and feeling that it has to leave and the theme of misunderstanding through as well in the bridge of the song there's a section nothing ever looks the same in the light and that stanza kind of just seems to be calling out a lot of the same thoughts that this movie develops about things are not always as you seem and by not having an open mind to that, you can lose some things that are very precious. But even though even though a separation has occurred, even though some things are lost, there is something something was forged in this song and in the movie that will remain. They're leaving, but there's still a connection. I will be with you. So yeah, thematically there are a lot of things that tie back to this movie. Specifically in the lyrics, there are also a lot of things that don't. Yeah, maybe that's what's also kind of throwing me off. It doesn't have to be totally locked on or anything like that, but I do kind of feel like 
Maybe there aren't enough lines that I can personally draw. Maybe I'm not on the right wavelength for this. I feel like I should maybe enjoy this more than I do, but maybe it's my taste in music, maybe it's something like that. One other thing I want to ask, who are the lost ones of the title, do you think, in relationship to the movie? I mean, are we talking about Palkia and Dialga? Are we talking about all those unknown we see in, like, the opening sequence, or...? Yeah, I don't know specifically to the reverse world, or just the general, the lost ones, again, just that sense of being exiled and having to live in the shadows, a la Mewtwo and and Darkrai and Mew and all of them. Huh. That... I feel like I have to think about that for a good month and come back to you. <laughs> yeah, that is a bit esoteric there, I suppose. I, I, I think you could have a couple different interpretations. Maybe we'll throw this out to the listeners and ask them where they think the lost ones go and who those lost ones are. Great listener question, Anne. Thanks. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've we've covered a quite a bit of ground there. Let's head back to the English side. So... I'll always remember you. I, I I do have a fair bit of things to say in here. Um, stylistically, I like the way that this song starts out very minimal and sort of builds, not unlike, uh, you know, Where the Lost Ones Go. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of opens up as time goes on. So I wanted to mention another one of Kirsten Price's songs. We've talked about it before. One reason I may prefer, and sorry to sew my hand so much before we get to the third part, <laughs> this song is that if you look at her stuff, she's got a song called Possibilities. And the original version of that song was being written by Michael Hutchins, the lead singer, uh, the original lead singer of In Excess. Sorry, we're mentioning them again this time. <laughs> But um, he was working on that when he passed away, and she more or less finished it and released it. And uh, going back to that band, this song gives me a little bit of a feeling of the NXS song, Never Tear Us Apart. And some of that may be the closing sequence, which shows shots of the town. If you look at the music video for Never Tears Apart. I believe it was shot in Prague, Czechoslovakia, back when that was still one country. (laughs) Maybe that's drawing some parallels, but between that that song she did, she seems to me a lot like a female Michael Hutchins in terms of her voice. I do not know if she tried out for Rockstar in Excess. I didn't ask her that. (laughs) She would have gotten farther than I would. Um, (laughs) But... um, I, I I sense a certain thing there, and maybe that's why I gravitate towards this song more. But, um, I mean, it, it's definitely got sort of a, a bit of a rock vibe, especially as it goes on. There's more guitar, more uh, electric guitar type stuff going on in there. Was that sort of the uh, vibe you got as far as, like, the instrumentation? Yeah, and, yeah, I, I agree. There's things about it that just... I love that it's a kind of starts out very ballady, very power ballady, um, and it kind of builds an intensity. Like it's different, but it does seem to be channeling the same mood as as the track it's replacing, and I appreciate that. And gosh, this is a beautiful song. I love how it opens, just slow and beautiful. And she has a, a gorgeous voice. Like yeah, when when the movie ends. I've not seen it all in English, but I have seen kind of the ending credits and like when the credits start and the, the, and her voice comes in, like it also evokes all those feelings that you want to be having at the end of this rather serious Pokemon movie. It it does not end on a high. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, it has that. I mean, Dark Ride does sort of come back at the end, obviously. So it's, it's a bit resolved there, but. True. I, I, I guess I meant it wasn't. It doesn't end on like a, a real happy, like woohoo kind of feeling. It's a very bittersweet and and almost heavy moment. Like they have not yet finished wiping their tears. Yeah, and and going back to where I said it kind of opens as it goes along. I really wish they could have like done some sort of music video treatment for this song and put that out there because I think. 
using those kinds of mechanics and maybe some clever transitions and maybe changes in uh, appearance or lighting or whatever as the song uh, moves along and, and becomes more and more, maybe flamboyant isn't probably the right word, but more open, I guess, is the best word I can come up with at this time. I think that would have presented quite an opportunity there. Um, what what about you? Yeah, I I would agree. Yeah, it's like the more you could have done with the song, the better, basically. Like, it does feel a little underutilized for what a big song it is. <laughs> I'm not coming up with great adjectives either, but yeah, like, it, it just has such potential as as a evoking piece. So yeah, no, the more they could have done with it, the better. So any any opportunity that didn't get taken is a missed opportunity. Yeah, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> what about the, the lyrics? Now, I suppose there are two ways you could interpret this. You could say that this is from Dark Rice's perspective of Alicia slash Alice. Those are two different people, but you get the idea. Mm. Or from Alice's perspective to Dark Rye, or, or or what do you think there? I I seem to flop back and forth because I th- I think at the end I would come down that it's more from Alice's and the human perspective because there's so many references of like you will always be my hero. Braver than us all, your sacrifice, etc. Everywhere I walk, I see your shadow. Yeah. Um, yeah there's some things like that. But I, I do think you're right that there is a, a case to be made that it's from Dark Rise perspective because one of the things you find out during the movie is it kind of viewed Alice slash Alicia in a similar way. And every song I sing, I hear your melody, things like that. So... Do you think this could have been done as a duet? Yeah, actually, that's a wonderful idea. I would love to hear this as a duet. Somebody get on that and cover that. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's a wonderful idea. Maybe have uh, Kirsten kind of dressed up like Alice, and then maybe have the other person still be a, uh, a person. Uh, don't put someone in a dark rice suit, but maybe give their <laughs> their outfit some... <sighs> some pieces to Black it. Black with red and white accents or something. You huh. could do something really neat there, I bet. Missed opportunity totally. Spike their but their hair a little. <laughs> yeah, no, this this song would be very lovely as a, as a duet in, in the similar style to Where the Lost Ones Go of, you know, some, some counterpoint, some, you know, each one takes a verse maybe, harmony on the bridge. Like, yeah, no, there's a great opportunity there and maybe that inspired on the dub side some of the uh some of the duets that we'll see in like the fifth generation where the opening themes are are pretty much all done that way oh yeah possibly any other thoughts on this i i really like it even as a single person i think it it does very well in my mind uh anything else that struck you about it it's a very beautiful song and I mentioned that I I've not yet seen the movie in English, and because of that, like I was not familiar until this song until far long after it had actually released um, on the English side. But I had discovered it through a lot of anime music videos that people make online. It, it's a, a song that kind of just seemed to crop up even in other other anime that people were making music videos of. So I think it's a song that can kind of. It works very well for the movie it's in, but it's got such an emotional push to it that it can kind of transcend and apply to other stories. And it seems that it's a song that resonated with a lot of people for a lot of different types of of stories and relationships. So that's kind of impressive, I think. Yeah, but it is kind of something you can say about both of these songs, even though they kind of took opposite paths to get there. Mm. Yeah. That's always fun when we can kind of draw a line like that between the uh, the two songs. Yeah, and find some some similarities or, or points of reference, yeah. In any case, uh, I think we're probably ready to move on to part three. Um, you know, I'm going to give sort of my take first this time around. Okay. <laughs> so, just to be clear, I don't think either of these songs is bad. Uh, I think they're good. I think they have some very good writing behind both of them. 
both originally in the case of the first one and in the more recent rendition that you hear in this movie. And despite that, because I must be on the wrong wavelength or I just female Michael Hutchins is too good for me to turn down. Well, I think these are both good. I think that I'll Always Remember You is distinctly ahead, at least to me and my musical taste. I think it is the better song. It works better for me. Now, I can see some folks having the opposite opinion, (laughs) and I think that's okay. But part of the reason I started this series is, you know, with a creative work, something that is inherently subjective, it's fine to have an opinion, but make sure you're not cheating yourself out of something that you could have liked. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen some very negative reactions to I'll Always Remember You. Why didn't they use, you know, the the song? It was in English, you know. I'm sure they could have just cut a check, although it would have cost a fair would bit. It would probably have been a large check. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they could have done it. But, like I said, just, just make sure you're not cheating yourself with a creative product, some alternate version of it that you're not just disliking it out of close-mindedness. If you still end up preferring one or the other, that's fine. But just try to keep it in check. And that's sort of part of the moral, I guess, of this one, or at least part of my reason for starting this series. With that out of the way, Anne, uh, what do you think here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I do think we both came in predisposed uh, to like a particular song and not much was going to sway it. Although to speak to your point, yeah, like when you allow yourself to accept the fact that there are different versions out there, and even if you don't like them as much, they might still be worth listening to, you can discover wonderful things. Because for me, I will be with you where the Lost Ones Go is my choice, but the opportunity to discover I'll Always Remember You is has been wonderful like and and to associate it finally with the movie that it's attached to instead of you know just appreciating it as a song it's a lovely song it's wonderful for the movie and i'm really actually grateful that we do this series and we get to talk about it a bit in depth and kind of more deeply analyze why it does work for movie 10 and why why you do appreciate it so much that said i will be with you where the lost ones go like i said it it's not as lyrically tied to the movie as I'll Always Remember You, which is usually my go-to, but there is something about what's happening musically that, you know, after having all these years to kind of think about it way too hard, it feels like it ties in more with the themes of the movie and the way I feel when I watch it. And there are a lot of lyrical parallels as well. And and also, we're still in that era of time where I was buying these DVDs and experiencing the movies in Japanese in Japan. So I also have that emotional attachment to it. So that that emotional language and those touchstones are all hit by this song rather than I'll always remember you. So yeah, for me, I'm going to go with I Will Be With You Where the Lost Ones Go. So we, we've We've split cleanly down the middle. <laughs> I suppose so. Like I said, I, this was definitely one of the movies I wanted to get to at some point because I, I knew that there are at least, you know, there's at least definitely some division out there and, and some people who, like I said, just don't cheat yourself. And that, that, that's important with especially creative works is mm. to make sure you're not just, you know, depriving yourself of something you could have found some value in so yeah like at the very least it's it's interesting to look at the movie from another perspective through through the lens of a different song okay well there's plenty of other music involved in this let's start by talking about the opening themes now on the japanese side they have a version of together that uh has some really great instrumentation, um, but parallel to that, on the English side, we have not the Diamond and Pearl original theme, the, the Breeze Barkinski rap one, but actually a song that would become the second Diamond and Pearl dub theme, We Will Be Heroes, which... Um, oh. 
Yeah, so that's kind of a, a weird backwards of what we usually get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the Japanese one. What are your thoughts on Together? Uh, there are obviously a couple different versions of that. Uh, what do you think about it? I've I've kind of always had a love-hate relationship with Together. Like, I don't enjoy listening to it, but I really enjoy, like, singing it at karaoke and, like, playing Taiko no Tatsuji and, like, and stuff like that. Like, there's something about it that's ridiculously car- catchy, but I've never liked it as a song. And I also have tended to shy away from the opening songs that are more about cramming in as many game vocabulary references as you can rather than having an emotional meaning to it, I guess. Whereas I, I prefer opening songs like Rival or something that have a very specific story and, and a meaning while also having a couple references to like Pokemon attacks and things. Whereas this is just, it almost seems like they're just cramming things in there. I don't know. I've, I've never loved Together. <laughs> well, as someone who doesn't speak Japanese, I, I think I prefer, this is probably my favorite version of it more or less. I like the... It reminds me of something I've, I've never actually seen this show, but uh, Riverdance. Oh yeah, um, like like I could imagine. Well, not our. Well, I can imagine our main characters, but it would look completely ridiculous doing some sort of river dance type thing. But you know what I mean. Some somebody who's good at flash animation can make that happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I just like the way it sounds. I mean. I think it mentions a few character names, but uh, not knowing Japanese as I do, maybe I'm kind of oblivious to uh, how much it's trying to cram in there. So maybe maybe that's to my benefit, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if if anyone wants to, they can like look that up on like Bulbapedia or something. There's a lot, and unfortunately, I think it takes away from the narrative of the song. But that also could be my opinion because. It is it is a fun song and a catchy beat that, despite the fact that I don't love it, it's still on my playlist. <laughs> and and you're right, this instrument, this particular version of it is quite delightful and fun while they're walking through the festival and stealing people's cotton candy. And <laughs> yeah, so and then like I said, on the English side we have "We Will Be Heroes." So yeah, the first Diamond and Pearl dub theme was, um, I think it was just called Diamond and Pearl, and was by Breeze Parkinski, who we'll talk about a little bit later. And, um, you know, I don't dislike it as much as some folks obviously do, uh, the the rap that they had there. I think it makes the show, that season of the show, hard to marathon. It gets a little bit grating on me, but <laughs> for this movie, they made this this new song, which becomes the second dub theme of Diamond and Pearl. Uh, the movie version is performed by John Leffler, who wrote it with David Wolford, and uh, you may also know, of course, performed way back on To Be a Master, You Can Do It If You Really Try. Uh, what do you think it's like um, having him back and doing a, a song again? Um, like, it just feels right. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to put it beyond that. Like, it's just... It, it, it's a musical sensibility that we're used to. Does that make sense in the scheme of Pokemon? I, I think it does kind of sort of, you know, especially since we're now, you know, like a season or two past the, the dub switchover, I think it does help maybe ground this a little bit in, in the series history as much as they could given the circumstances. Yeah, like I'm not trying to imply necessarily like that there was anything wrong with any of the other songs or sorry, that were not by him, but like, yeah, there's just something familiar about that, and to the human brain, familiar is comforting. I would never turn it down. I suppose. <laughs> now, of course, the TV version that debuts sometime after this movie is released is uh, done by Kirsten Price, as we just mentioned, and uh, it's more or less same lyrics. It's much shorter. There's no full version of that one, like there more or less is for this one, uh, any any thoughts on that version of it that we hear a little bit later? Like I said, it's, it's the kind of the reverse of the usual situation. Right. I, I'm to be honest, I'm not as familiar with we will be with we will be heroes and all its many versions. Of just because this was again the period of my life where I was not living in the U.S. and 
and not as inclined to watch it in English because I the Japanese was readily available and I could understand it. So, so yeah, like I don't know if I have a real strong opinion on it. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, there's another vocal song we should probably talk about, and in the English credits after I Always Remember You, there's a song again. Breeze Barkinski does "Living in the Shadow," and. It's got a, a kind of an interesting sort of, I can't, there's another time where I can't really come up with the correct genre name for it, but it's got sort of a a fun but menacing <laughs> kind of, <laughs> maybe not totally unlike like the old Team Rocket song from To Be A Master in that kind of uh, vein. Of, what do you think about that? I, I like it. Like... I I I don't love it as much as I love I'll always remember you but like I do like they they went with something that's just got a little that's just a little bit less pretty cuz definitely the marketing in America and in Japan as well was like very much like about the the versus Dialga versus Palkia and the dark rye and like everything's like intense so <laughs> I like taking a slightly different direction with the second song in the credits in that way. I think it's also the part of the end credits that somewhat teases the, this is, this is movie is of course the first part in a trilogy. So having a bit of a tonal change there as I think it's what Alga is sort of getting, uh, heading off. And there's a little bit of a, a hint that this story goes on or connects to the next movie a little bit. Uh, maybe, gives that little change in tone uh, a bit more, um, makes it a bit more appropriate. What do you think there? I I would definitely agree. Yeah, and like all the stuff with the reverse world, and I, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily a super serious song, but I do like that it has just a bit more of an energy and a a darker energy to it, like even though it's, it's not a, a super, uh, like a dark as in depressing song necessarily, but it does just, it just has that little bit of edge that I'll always remember you didn't have. And I, I do think that works. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention is that it's a partial song, at least as far as the end credits go, there's a little more people have pieced together using some of like the DVD menus, but even then it sounds like we still don't have everything in there. Um, would love to hear uh, like a full version of whatever they ended up recording there. Um, it's kind of a shame that, you know, the stuff post third gen, there's never been a dub commercial release of, of much of anything there, which is really quite a shame. Yeah. Now, we're not sure if this is the Japanese equivalent in some form. It may be related to a short or something like that. There's, uh, when I was listening through the score album for this movie, at the end, there's a, a song I, I kind of forgot existed. Uh, it's called, like, Is It Summer? What's what's that about, Anne? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it about? It's 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 really just uh, one of the child, like, you know, can you name all the Pokemon sort of call and response type song. It's like it, the opening is just like, yay, 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 let's sing together. Yay, 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 let's all dance. So it's kind of that type of Pokemon song. And I, I do remember at the time uh, that this movie was releasing on DVD, there was a a huge compilation CD released. And I think there might have been more than one that had a lot of these types of songs on it. And so I, I, I can't be sure if it was tied to any specific short because I, I definitely can't find anything on it. But it's definitely just one of those this this is for the young kids to keep them happy and entertained and and it just goes with you know some of those many songs released in the diamond and pearl era that were for the younger fans in the audience and i'm not sure if there's really much point to this like much of a plot to the song it's just you know references all these summer things um of just you know coconuts and everlasting summer and sweating as hard as we can as we race to the top of the hill the usual theme of friendship there are like a couple references to i think like summer foods and and squid and things so like i can't find any real pokemon-y references though which is what makes it interesting i think mm. that because usually in these songs, you would have like a lot of like calling out the names of the Pokemon and stuff. And this one, I don't think does anywhere. 
So yeah, a little bit of an oddity there. Like I said, I totally forgot that uh, when I got to the end of the album, that when I was re-listening to the score, it was surprised me. Oh yeah, this thing. Uh, maybe I never played it on the station either, I'm not sure. But uh, speaking of the score, we definitely have to talk about that. Now this is another, again, um, in this era, they're more or less porting over the Japanese score to the English version, which may be a, a few exceptions here or there. Let's talk about, what do you think about the score overall? I, it's kind of, of, I'm of two minds with it, because there are moments in this score that are fascinating and brilliant, like um, Oracion is one, there's a track called Pokemon Called Gods, and and it kind of has some similar things going on um, while Sato's having his little nightmare, like, there, there's the sound design of this movie and the way the music works with it, because it is a movie where music plays a, a part in the plot are, are used very brilliantly and I love it. And Alice's, Alice's flute, the, the grass flute, anything that takes place like in the reverse world, like there's a lot of beautiful uses of sound and silence and echoes as well as just sparse but impactful music like that dong. So... I love it. I think it works perfectly. But there are also moments where the score seems very in line with previous Pokemon movies and the sort of impression we've gotten through their scoring. And there are a couple places where I almost want to tell the score to shut up for a second. It, like it, It's not that it necessarily is a huge departure from the stuff that definitely is inspired by the movie and the needs of the plot in, in the way that say a couple tracks of the last movie the Manaphy movie did not fit in with the whole but there are times where i think the score just gets a little too loud and a little too pokemon score kind of way <laughs> i don't know if that made any sense but it made sense in my head <laughs> how, how do you feel about it <laughs> I like it for the most part. We'll definitely talk to uh, talk about Arasian in a little bit here in detail. Mm. But, um, yeah, there's some good themes in there. Um, I think Darkrai has more or less a theme. I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes. If I heard it, I'd probably recognize it instantly. Uh, but I think that's very well done. I, I also think you're, you're hinting there, it sounds like, that uh, going forward from here is when the movie's like I said, it, I've had some criticisms of the last couple of movies. I haven't listened to the Japanese 20th movie score yet, but uh, I think they're becoming maybe a little less distinct and memorable as time goes on, but there's still some good stuff in this one. Yeah, I would agree with that sentiment. I, I think where this score and the previous movie score really excelled was when they kind of got away from doing things the way they've always done and like going for that something completely different where you know last last movie it was kind of like the marimba feel and anything that didn't fit in with that almost felt like a letdown or or a or a dissonance and i think in this movie the parts of the score that were at their best were the stuff that was completely different from what we typically expect from a pokemon musical score and if I remember correctly, there might be a game. There are a couple game uh, tune cues in there, and they have uh, Byerside Dawn's theme. I don't know if that made it into the dub. I think it eventually does in the series. That or Surely Tomorrow does make an instrumental appearance. But as far as this movie score, the, the score album definitely has a version of By Your Side. Yeah, it it does. I I've listened, and I've not heard it in the movie. Hmm. Like, I mean, it might be there and I've just never noticed, but yeah, no, I don't believe it actually, actually made it in the movie. I think it's just in there to, to couple with the CD. Hmm. Well, in any case, we, we definitely got to talk about the, the, uh, the big, uh, production number, uh, in the score, I suppose you say, Arasian. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, we, we get a taste of it early with, um, Alice's uh, whistle thing and, and a little bit of a comment there, but of course the the big thing is towards the end they realize they have to find the uh, the correct disc and put that in there and get that to play to sort of write everything in the um, in in the city and get get the the dragons to stop fighting and, and whatnot. I like the way it sounds. I'm having mm -hmm. trouble describing. You know, it's got some very nice interval work. I would say. 
And, um, you know, obviously, it's since it's being produced by um, the bell tower there that sort of forces certain structural things, uh, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on it? I agree. And I, I again, that's kind of what I was trying to get at with all my word vomit about the, the parts of the score that are at their best are when they're something completely different. It's like the track Oracion and that, that musical cue, it serves the needs of the plot. It is, in fact, not a, a musical score so much as it's, it's plot, what's happening. And like the, you know, the, the characters and the environment itself is making the noise. It's not a, a score that just plays under while the action happens. And there's something about that that is very visceral, I guess, in the way audiences, but definitely I kind of process the musical score. And you can feel that on some of the other tracks too, again, with a lot of the scenes with Dark Cry and its themes, things in the reverse world when Satoshi's having the the nightmare vision things and the flashbacks with um, Alice Alicia that Dark Cry has. Like when the score kind of gets out of the way, except for what's actually needed by what's happening in the scene, that's when the musical genius of it kind of floats to the surface. And yeah, the, the Oracion track um, and the things that are happening around it is kind of where that uniqueness comes out too, because again, it's not just a, a musical cue. It's directly influenced by the actions that we're seeing on screen and the conceits of it, I guess. Like, you know, there's pauses where you can see the the hammers moving to hit the bell and things like that. Yeah, it it it, it really is a, a somewhat unique piece of music. I don't know, you know, looking back at some of the other times we've had these these sorts of, you know, some of the other really memorable um score cues in Pokemon movies. Speaking from a kind of a dub perspective, you know, you got Tears of Life in the first movie, mm-hmm. you've got The Legend Comes to Life in 2000, you've got the um Exploring the city theme in movie five. You've got Make-A-Wish in movie six. Uh, where do you think, those are some of the, the best known ones and best liked ones. Where do you think this sort of fits in there? Oh, if I had to rank them, oh, I don't know. Because I, I am just so in love with Make-A-Wish. But, you know, there is something about this. It's not as well known as, say, Lugia's Lugia's song and, and or or even the Tears of Life, but I almost think that this, if I had to pick one to one piece to like show the world and be like, this is like the epitome of achievement in Pokemon music or something, it would be Oracion. Mm. And again, part of that is is its melody, but most of it is the same thing that makes. Lugia's song works so well, which is when it opens, it's just that flute and you can almost hear the breath moving across the, the ocarina w- with uh, the Chisakimono, um, a, a make a wish. It- it's appearance in that movie. Our first introduction to it is May singing. And there's, again, there's just something about that that's really special having it tie into what's actually happening visually. And I say that because I've heard um, a couple piano covers of Oracion and, and it's pretty, but it doesn't do anything special for me. Whereas every time I put in this DVD and that first hammer starts hitting, hitting the bells, I like, I get chills. Personally, I would put um, definitely the legend comes to life and uh, (laughs) this, this exploring the city theme. Um, Oh, I forgot that one. Yeah. From from movie five, probably ahead of this, but I think it's maybe in a toss up with Tears of Life. Obviously, if your experience comes mostly from the earlier movies, Tears of Life is going to win out there, but <laughs> this is definitely one of the beloved ones. I'm not sure what we get from a later movie that really matches up to this kind of a little bit sadly. Um, of course, uh, Movie 20 in Japan uh, did write words to this, and we'll talk about that more in our future episode, uh, probably around the time that comes out on video, um, mm-hmm. and we can do some more more comparisons there. 
But yeah, yeah, definitely a, a, a well-loved entry in the sort of uh, instrumental score library of the franchise. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so we did get a little bit of feedback on my YouTube channel when I put this out there. Uh, this is from Richard Wright, and he says, I use Orassian as my ringtone. It has become one of my favorites uh, from the score. And, uh, you know, it... It's always an interesting discussion, I suppose, about what Pokemon song you would use as a ringtone. I actually used um, the phone call sound effect from one of the, the first episodes of the anime. I cannot claim credit for that idea. Someone else on like the Bulba Garden forums came up with that, and I thought, that's a great idea. And I, I went on and I did that. What do you think, Anne? Uh, do you think there's something here you might want to use as a ringtone? Would that... Uh I, you know, now that he's mentioned it, that sounds like a lovely ringtone to have, particularly to attach to somebody whose call I wanted to get. Um, but if we're going with that theme, like maybe I, maybe I'd use um, that track Pokemon called Gods, where it's just like, bum, bum, for maybe, I don't know, my alarm in the morning or something. Yeah, it, it sort of depends. I don't know. Having a song like that as my ringtone, I might probably would throw me for a loop. You always got to be careful when you use a, a, a song as a ringtone is that you might get annoyed in the future when you hear that song in, in the uh, natural setting. So you do got to be careful there. It seems to work for him though, yeah. <laughs> but uh, glad to hear that. Uh, feedback always makes these, these episodes a lot more fun and we love hearing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well I think that's going to do it for our discussion of the Dark Rye movie. The next episode um, is going to be movie 11. Giratina and the Sky Warrior, a.k.a. the Shaman movie, and the Japanese-English matchup there. On the Japanese side, we have One by Crystal K, not to be confused with the song from the dubs soundtrack to Pokemon Movie 2000. <laughs> that is something totally different. And on the English side, we have This is a Beautiful World by Aaron Brotherton, uh, who has... Unfortunately, I was never able to get an interview with him or track him down, but I do want a little bit about him. But otherwise, I think that's going to do it for our discussion of Movie 10, The Dark Rai Movie. Uh, until our next discussion, and thank you very much for being on here. Oh, thank you. This has been Stephen Reich from the Pokepress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, with Anne from Big Podcast discussing the music of The Dark Rai Movie. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich, here at Pegasus Games in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm here with James, who has placed first in a recent League Challenge in the Seniors Division that was held here. He also participated in a recent Pokemon trading card game, Ultra Prism pre-release. And we're going to talk about both of those today. So, James, first of all, uh, what did you pick to run in the League Challenge? What deck did you use there? Um, I use mainly uh, Water Deck. Um, based around uh, Greninja Break and Alolan Ninetales. Yeah, definitely an old standby we've seen a lot of. Any particular reason you picked that for this tournament? Um, mainly because most of my strongest cards are water types anyway, so I just use them. Also, water types is probably one of my favorites, diversity-wise. Gotcha there! Okay, well, uh, you did very well in the tournament. Uh, what worked well for your deck there? Um... Mainly the fact that my opponents, I, I knew the opponent's deck well. Um, I've seen it multiple times and built it myself before. And quite easy to beat when you know everything about it. Yeah, sometimes you do get those matchups in there. Well, let's talk about the pre-release then. Uh, there's a couple cards you've picked out that you want to talk about. The first one is Rampardos. Uh, one of the, uh, it's sort of a, an unusual thing because it, it eventually comes from a, a fossil, if I remember correctly, uh, which they have brought back yet again and yet another permutation in this set. Uh, what, what strikes you about it? The fact that it, it's second attack, despite being pretty pricey, it basically insta-kills anything that's a basic, and I find that really intriguing. Yeah, we've seen that before. It can get a little out of control, but hopefully they've costed it a little more appropriately. But yeah, there's still a lot of uh, EXs, GXs, all that fun stuff there to, to, to work on. All right, well, let's tell the folks at home about the other card you picked out, which is Garchomp, a very popular card. What does it do, and what do you like about it? 
Um, it's one of the. It's a card that, if paired with another supporter, it gets a bit more powerful for its attack because um, the second attack. So it does 100, and if you play uh, the card Cynthia, it does 200 as long as you played it in that turn. And I find that pretty intriguing. Yeah, it's definitely a combo to watch out for. Garchomp is amazingly powerful on its own, but yeah, paired with Cynthia. And a few other cards in the set look like they would go well with that. All right. Well, thank you very much, James. This has been Steven Reich from Pegasus Games in Madison, Wisconsin, covering a recent Pokemon trading card game, League Challenge, and pre-release. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. One other thing I want to ask, who are the lost ones of the title, do you think, in relationship to the movie? The actor in me says that's up to the singer, <laughs> but, ah, uh, yeah, no, I, I, again, I think that's up to the singer and how they define lost ones, and if they want to, like, go super dark and, and make a death metaphor, or if they want to draw parallels to, like, being exiled, and, you know, the lost ones are those who have been kicked out of the, the happy place, or Garden of Eden parallels, like, yeah, I, I, I think that's at the discretion of the singer and the lyricist at the specific time at which the song is being performed. <laughs> I was thinking more about the movie, though. Any characters in the movie? Oh, gotcha. Oh.